Hello and welcome to Matters of the Heart, a podcast where I talk to interesting people about interesting things in cardiology. My name is Rahul Muthalali and I'm a cardiologist and PhD candidate at the Victorian Heart Hospital. Today I'm going to be talking to Professor Stephen Nichols about lipoprotein little a. I'm sure many of you are aware of Steve's work. He's one of Australia's leading clinical trialists and he's really been an essential part of the lipid story worldwide. It's hard to think of anyone better positioned to give us insights into the state of the art when we come to talking about lipoprotein little a. Lipoprotein little a has really gained traction in the last few years as an important cardiovascular risk factor, particularly in those who appear to be somewhat unjustly suffering ASCVD. That is to say, they don't have any of the standard modifiable risk factors. But it's increasingly being recognised as a latent risk factor in many people, maybe up to 10-20% to of the population. There are multiple lipoprotein little a therapies on the horizon in the next few years, and it's probably going to become a regular part of our clinical practice. So I think that now is a fantastic time to deep dive and understand exactly what this little molecule is all about. So without further ado, I give you Professor Stephen Nichols on lipoprotein little a. So, Steve, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Now, you know, I've given you a little bit of introduction before this, but you're obviously one of the world's leading uh, lipidologists, and you're also the director of the Victorian Heart Institute here in Victoria, Australia, and the director of the Victorian Heart Hospital simultaneously. And you're a world-leading clinical trialist in the lipid field, but also more broadly, I'd say the... Uh, preventative cardiology or just the cardiology space in general and I would definitely want to get to know the Steve Nichols story but maybe we could start with um, what it was like growing up in Gawla, South Australia. Uh, well I didn't grow up in Gawler, I was born in Gawler. Oh, okay. uh, my uh, father was in the Air Force um, so we moved a lot. Uh, I happened to be born uh, when they were living in an Air Force base in the northern aspects of Adelaide uh, and um, Gawler was a probably a, a smallish town at the time, although it's kind of probably part of the metropolitan sprawl today. Yeah. Um, and um, born in Gawler. Uh, did you decide that you were going to do lipidology fairly early, early on or was that a late stage decision? Um, I did my basic training, uh, physician training at the Royal Adelaide. Um, uh, Phil Barter was in Adelaide at the time, professor of cardiology and with a pretty vast track record in in, in plasma lipoproteins and HDL in particular. Um, I was kind of keen to do a PhD with Phil, um, went off to Newcastle to do my advanced training and kept in contact with Phil and um, was of the view that was the best PhD for me to go. So I went back and did a PhD with, with Philip and Kerry, Kerry and Rye, um, and certainly developed a, a, a broader interest in lipids at that point. And keep in mind that was, you know, a PhD that started just after 2000. So we'd pretty much established that high-intensity statin therapy was, was, was becoming a good thing, um, but we didn't have anything else. It's crazy to think that in 2000 that's where we were, you know. Yeah, well, well I think you had clinical trials in the – the early part of that decade that were the first ones that were showing that high-intensity statins were better than moderate-intensity statins. And, in fact, those studies originally were set out 
to actually prove the opposite that they weren't. So, um, um, which was really interesting. And and so, um, little did I know that uh, a translational PhD would fill um, mainly on HDL would then go to a postdoc with Steve Nissen in the Cleveland Clinic, which I kind of went to for two reasons. One, because I thought there was a lot of interest from an atherosclerosis researcher in using plaque imaging to look at the effect of medical therapies. Um, but two, um, they were just starting to conduct studies of HDL infusions. And I thought, here's a guy that's done a PhD in HDL. It's my time to strike. It's my time to strike. And so with a Heart Foundation Fellowship, I kind of went off and that study had actually just finished, but I got to do some of the really nice post post hoc kind of work looking at that and then that led to a whole bunch of other things. And, you know, I quote I quote one of my former mentors um, quite a bit um, in that when I left my clinical fellowship in Newcastle to do my PhD, you know, one of the cardiologists took me aside and said, you know, I think, I think you'll do really well in your career. Um, I wonder if you could have chosen a different topic for your PhD because with statins now, I don't know if there's much of a future in lipids. The whole thing solved, yeah. And, uh, you know, I do, I do remind that individual every once in a while and I bring it up at talks because the next 20 plus years has been uh, just an extraordinary oh, journey of, 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 of uh, highs and lows uh, in lipids. Yeah. Yeah. Now, a lot of your early work or even, you know, your more recent work involved intravascular imaging as a way of assessing the effect of these drugs. How did you end up with um, the intravascular imaging profile and, and you know, how do you think that that's evolved in the modern era as a, as a means of assessing drugs? So, Phil, um, Philip asked me about a year into my PhD what was next and, and, and that's quite confronting early on. Uh, when you think, geez, I've just started here and people already are saying what, what comes after that. So, um, but he was actually really supportive of that concept that, you know, you, you've got the opportunity to pursue this pathway as a clinical academic. Uh, where you go next is important and, and you do need to give some really clear and purposeful thought to that. And I did think about that a lot. Um, and I was attracted to go to work with Steve Nissen at Cleveland Clinic. I, I saw that Steve was really harnessing intravascular imaging of atherosclerosis, which which was really developed as an interventional cardiologist's best friend. Mm. Um, wasn't developed for the kinds of things I do, but but actually Steve saw the power of that very early on. Um, that there could be a lot to be learned from really studying the disease. Um, at the highest resolution possible at the time, so um, that was that was really attractive to me that um, I could go and work with Steve. Steve was just starting to do clinical trials in the space. Um, I was going to do a little bit of work there for a short period of time at Cleveland Clinic and come home, but uh, uh, lots of things <laughs> kind of happened, and I ended up staying there a long time and running trials and 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 running the core lab and. Um, being very involved in the clinical trial ecosystem at, at Cleveland Clinic. so um, But what that allowed us to do was to do two things. One, um, conduct clinical trials that asked what we thought were clinically important questions. Um, two, understood the the mechanistic effects of therapies. Drugs. Yeah. Um, and... Um, 
And then three, we could then go back into those trials and then we could pull data from trials and we could ask a whole bunch of other questions. I've got many more questions about that, but we might move on to the topic of today's podcast, if that's all right, which is lipoprotein little a. Um, I'm guessing you've seen the evolution of this uh, particle quite significantly in your career. And I thought maybe we could start with you describing what lipoprotein little a actually is from a molecular point of view and, and maybe what that significant what the significance of that molecular structure is. Well, for all intents and purposes, LP little a is essentially an LDL particle with an extra protein on the side. Um, so it's an ApoB lipoprotein. It's produced in the liver. ApoA is produced in the liver, um, and um, it turns out that complex produces a lipoprotein that uh, turns out to be highly atherogenic. Um, we've known about LP little a since the early sixties. Uh, if you have a look at a, and I've seen you've seen this figure presented by a number of people now. If you if you do a PubMed search by year on publications of LP little a, you've got this spike in the 60s and then it almost goes quiet in the 70s, 80s and the early part of the 90s and then it starts to increase and it starts to increase because we have genetics, we have therapeutics um, and, and, and that's the game changer. So, But they were aware of the atherogenic potential, they just didn't have the ability to study it? In a they absolutely were. So, so if you kind of go back to you know when I was a, a fellow in the late 90s, um, LP little a was something we knew was a risk factor for heart disease. Um, it was something we didn't test for a lot. It tended to be the risk factor you'd test for when you had a 40-year-old person in the CCU with an infarct and no risk factors. And you left scratching your head thinking, why are they here? And so suddenly you'd then start to think, okay, what other tests would I... Let's go deeper. Let's go deeper. And LP little a was something we'd, we'd do. Um but now we clearly know a lot more. We know, we know, we know how it's made. We know it's got functional properties that aren't just like what LDL does. But there seems to be worse than that. There it may be some uh, prothrombotic effect, procalcific effect. Um, it's not just about atherosclerosis, but it may be aortic valve disease. Um, that's important. Some of that is related to the fact that that ApoA moiety has. Um, has some homology to plasminogen. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because this comes up in literature a lot, that there is that shared sort of morphology between that part of plasminogen and ApoA. And is that actually felt to be a big part of the story here? Because I know people were testing whether venous thromboembolism was increased in people who have um, high LP little a levels, and I think that hasn't borne out to be no. true so far. No, look, and, the, and you know, one of the questions that get asked a lot is why do we have LP little a? Yeah, that's you know, on it's, my list. One, it's 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 highly genetically regulated, right? So, you know, there are a few factors that influence what your level is, but it your level is largely your genetics. So one, the genetic conservation's high. Two, there are very few species that actually have LP little a. Yeah, my, I'm led to understand that an echidna, is, if I'm not mistaken, a hedgehog, has a, a hedgehog, a hedgehog has a similar molecule that was by convert or convergent evolution. So they started with something different, and it sort of looks the same as ours. It, is that it, right? That's right. So, um, so the question is, why do humans and hedgehogs <laughs> have this thing, and 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 really nothing else seems to? And and so it does beg the question: Why has this become so highly conserved? Uh, we we ask this question a lot not only about LP little a, but PCSK9, for example, where it's all good and fine for us to want to go and inhibit these things, but 
does it do anything? Why are they there? And what else is it doing? And, and you know, there's some school of thought. Um, does it have a role in haemostasis um, and clotting? Um, you, know, you know, the body does need to clot. Um, and, you know, as obviously in the setting of diseases, clotting uh, becomes dysregulated and then obviously we have to develop a range of therapies that target that. But um, so... Um, yeah, the plasminogen story has been a, an interesting one, but still kind of remains a little bit of a an unknown, and that plays out into some of the therapies that are being developed as well. Okay, so there's there's that aspect of it, and maybe that contributes to the atherothrombosis. But then, why is an LP little a particle more atherogenic than, say, an LDL particle? Um, is it to do with the size? There's some stuff about oxidized phospholipids that yeah. they might carry, their ability to penetrate the va- vascular wall. Does any of that sort of wholly explain things, or is it a still? A bit well, the oxidized phospholipid stories are a, a really interesting one. Sam Samikas and colleagues in San Diego have been, you know, developing a, a really incredible story for 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 many years now about the importance of oxidized phospholipids, which we knew were already deleterious at the level of the vasculature, but the importance of um, LP little A and studies that have looked at um, the pathogenicity associated with LP little a certainly tend to point to oxphospholipids. Uh, we know that um, the the size of your um, um, APOA um, and uh, particularly kind of number of Kringle repeats um, influences um, your level of LP little a, and 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 that's going to have um, um, some impact on atherogenicity, and and it's and we saw a paper in the Journal of American College of Cardiology about a month ago, where using genetics and and other studies, um, it looked like that per molecule, um, LP little a looks like it's about six times more atherogenic. I did than see LDL. that. Yeah, yeah, and so now you, it turns out you've got a lot more circulating LDL. That's the you offset know, there, particles, yeah. and that's the offset. But 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 these are these are pretty nasty things. Yeah. Where you know I I kind of jokingly call it LDL's evil cousin, <laughs> and um, you know so so um, there certainly packs a punch. And to boot, it doesn't seem to be as cleared by the LDL receptor, if I'm not mistaken, because it's not as well recognised as yeah. The LDL so particle. yeah, so I think the metabolism of all of that's still kind of being understood yeah. to. To, to a better degree, and, and, and that's critical as we try to develop therapies. So you'll see that the therapies that are being developed are essentially all about production mm-hmm. in one way or another. We don't have anything that enhances clearance yet, is that? No, and look, frankly, we may not need to. I mean, you, you know, when you look at the magnitude of therapeutic effect of, of what we're seeing, it's... Um, it's pretty impressive. It's yeah. pretty impressive in its own right, and maybe it's just turning it off Yeah, is all we need. And I suppose this is why it's such a helpful, coming back to the genetics, why it's such a helpful marker is that, if I'm not mistaken, basically your level's going to stay the same through your whole life unless you end up with something like nephrotic syndrome, I've heard, can vary your levels, maybe menopause. Is that yeah, right? so, the, so the school of thought for a long time was your genetics were it and your level was what it was and it didn't change, which isn't quite true. There is, there is a bit of variability. Um, certainly in, uh, um, in the setting of renal dysfunction, uh, inflammation, so suddenly you've got, you know, um, inflammation's a pretty 
commonly encountered thing, and 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 it does have implications if we're going to if we were to just routinely check LP little a in the CCU mm. in ACS patients. We know there's a heightened systemic inflammatory state. There is that exactly the right is time this to actually be their baseline? checking LP little a. That's right. So so that 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 has that has some implications, and and we know that there are some therapeutic effects. We know that statins, for example tend to raise LP little a. So, you know, all of that says, look, genetics are really important and they're more important for LP little a than pretty much anything else in lipids. Um, But there are some other factors that play a role too. Okay. Well, I think that leads nicely into my next questions, which are around, well, how should we measure it? I mean, and it's one of those interesting fields where I think we were using a different unit of measurement and now we've changed or a different method of measurement. And that does make it hard maybe if you're going to refer back to the previous literature for things yeah. like cutoffs and, you know, yeah, um, getting some consistency in the studies. So what's the current standard of measurement? Well, well, I think it's moved a lot. And, 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 I, and, and in fact, I think to say the current standard – would imply that even that's a standard, that which I think that that's probably still a work in progress. I think where we've moved is we've moved from a mass-based approach to a molar approach. So and counting the molecules, not yeah, counting the weight of them. And, 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 and it's just because that, um, that length for that APOA um, can be really misleading in terms of what it is that you're measuring. So um, I think the assays have got better. Um uh, it does have implications for kind of comparing apples on apples and going backwards. But I think that that being said, I think we've got a pretty fair idea in contemporary practice and research in terms of what molar levels of LP little a look like and and, 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 and how that translates to what's high. Um, we know that there's still a lot of variability between the assays. It's really good. So even when you're measuring in molar assays, you're going to get variability. Yeah, I, th- I think so, and I think that's the challenge: is is how do we continue to um, increase the um, the fidelity mm. of, of of the test? Keeping um, these apples to apples. Yeah, yeah um, and it has implications for uh, measuring it fresh. It has measurement implications for measuring it on frozen samples, and so. Um, you know, the idea of going and measuring LP little a in a large cohort study, um, you know, what the implications of, of looking at frozen samples that's, are. That's are really important. important because I guess a lot of people might be thinking, I'll measure this once in my life. And, you know, if there's enough variability, you might get false reassurance if it's, you get yeah. a low, I'm, I'm not sure what the... Well, look, I think, I think the broad sense is that there is variability, but it's not, it's not particularly huge. Huge, and and so uh, this notion of having an LP little a measurement once in your life is still a pretty reasonable notion, and and it's what the guidelines today advocate. the 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 other big challenge with measurement is it's just not it's about access. Yeah. So in in most countries, LP little a is not funded by conventional payers. Yep. Um, in our country, it's probably somewhere in the order of a twenty to forty dollar out-of-pocket expense for patients, um, that's not uncommon. And so as, as, as many of us in the field and the guidelines as well are advocating everybody should have this done, um, well, there's an out-of-pocket cost. And, and you, know, um, you know, for a lot of people where there's already considerable barriers to equitable health care, 
um, that's just another barrier um, that that may get in the way. And it does seem like another one of those things that people who are well off and very you know health literate are going to go and pursue these sort of novel risk markers, and people who are probably at the most risk are not going to end up getting any of this. Testing. True, and 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 you know we haven't seen a we haven't seen a jurisdiction of the world where the prevalence of high LP little a is not significant. We we think in every country probably has at least twenty percent. Of, of people have a high LP little a, um, we know some, um, we know some groups probably have higher levels of LP little a. African Americans, for example, tend to have higher LP little a levels. There's a there's a big move to make sure that we have better diversity in the large outcome trials of the LP little a th- lowering therapies accordingly. And and so how do we make sure that um, groups such as the African American community well represented um, to understand. Are well represented when they've not been particularly well represented in previous clinical trials. So so there's a lot of work being done on how do you build a diversity profile to get the right therapies to the people who may actually stand to benefit the, the most. most for them. And coming back to that, so I have read a lot about, you know, these differences between ethnicities and, and um, LP little a levels. Is it the case that it's not so much your absolute level but perhaps some sort of um, relative above the mean for your ethnicity? Is that the... So if I'm 1.2 standard deviations above the mean for black ethnicity, that's associated with risk as opposed to being at an absolute level, 125 nanomoles? Well, it's probably a combination of the two. I mean, you you know, when you start to get out into um, uh, communities where there's... We know there's a high cardiovascular risk. Um, We know, for example, in... um, in the African American community, hypertension, type two diabetes are pretty significant, Common, yeah. significant issues. Um, um, then where LP little A plays in there is 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 may potentially be different than than other groups. Across the board, all are important, um, but the relative contribution is important. We, we talk, I think, a lot about this when we think about what cardiovascular risk looks like across Asia Pacific. Mm. So we know that hypertension. In Japan's a big deal. We know in Japan you get more LDL lowering for a lower dose than you would in Australia. So there there, there are fundamental differences. And so when we start to think about the burden of disease that we're going to tackle in large heterogeneous populations, um, the solutions we want to bring to the table may be slightly different in different jurisdictions. Depending on the breakdown of what we got there. Yeah. yeah that's, uh, I'm sure there's a lot more to that story to come in the research. Um, but I want to talk to you now about LP little a and actual, as you said, outcome trials or outcome rates. So, you know, just to give a broad overview of the diseases that are actually associated with LP little a, I think it sounds like it's pretty incontrovertible that um, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease is associated with LP little a levels. So ischemic stroke seems to have sort of a fair bit of evidence. Aortic valve calcification, as you mentioned before, and things that are a bit more on the periphery. I think there was some data about AF, but that may have been clouded by ASCVD, you know, atherosclerosis risk factors. There's the data about venous thromboembolism has gone the other way. And then heart failure seems to be mentioned here and there. Is that a fair overall summary of where we're at? Yeah, it is. And, and the genetics probably is in line with that in that kind of order as well. I think that we have good data from Mendelian randomization that would suggest that LP little a does play a causal role in atherosclerotic disease, in valvular disease. Um, The data becomes a little less convincing for some of the other things, as you said, and maybe there's just some confounding in there. 
Um, I think the emerging story around heart failure, I think the emerging story around PAD um, is, is, is really interesting. And again, we need to think about those groups in terms of do we enrol them in clinical trials? What are the implications for models of care um, when LP little a lowering therapies get to the clinic? Um, we can't give new drugs to everybody. Mm-hmm. So we need, need to start to think where do we think the biggest bang for your buck is going to be? And, 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 and that's the way I think payers absolutely think about that where is the greatest modifiable risk okay and so i understand that the risk between lp little a and most outcomes is tends to be a continuous one that is there's no clear cut point but we have some cut points defined by the many associations out there that are dealing with this issue and it seems to sit around the 100 to 125 nanomoles per liter is that a fair i know there's some variation but is that where should a clinician out there who's looking to sort of integrate this into their practice where should they start thinking about I guess we always need to have a switch where we start to say, I'm going to do something and then start acting. Well, well, I think today, and thinking about what LP little a is to us today and what it may be to for us in five years' time. So today, where we don't have effective LP little a lowering therapies that are available in the clinic, and LP little a is essentially a risk enhancer. It helps us really take an intermediate risk patient and either up or down scale what we think their level of risk is and that has implications for the use of treating their existing kind of risk factor targets Um, and a 125 level would seem around the mark of most most cohort studies and most um, recommendations Um, what that looks like in seven years time if we have therapies that work and we have data that emerges from those clinical trials, maybe high, maybe higher or lower. So if you kind of use the LDL analogy, that target moved constantly. You know, you had 4S that came out in the early 90s and then you had a bunch of other studies that were being done with statins. Uh, you had a real school of thought that emerged from some people in Boston in the late 90s that said you couldn't possibly take your LDL below 125 milligrams per deciliter, which is three <laughs> millimoles per litre. Um, then we then we got high-intensity statins, then we got azetamide, then we got PCSK9 inhibitors, and, and we're seeing people in the clinic with LDLs below a millimole per litre. And so you need an evolution of evidence, and I, I suspect that that LP little a story could change in line with that evidence being generated. Yeah. Okay, all right. And so to get an understanding, you know, if you have an LP little a of 125, 150, what sort of hazard ratio are we looking at compared to someone who has something much more mild, say, you know, in the 10s or 20s range? Or is it, I, I'm led to believe it sits around the 2 rate mark, is that right? Yeah, you know, and, and, and to some degree that may not impress people that much. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but actually it's the reality of looking at risk factors in really big cohort studies. I think if we, if you look at really sufficiently powered really robust cohort studies and you look at what new risk factors, emerging risk factors look like, um, you know, a hazard ratio of two with a fairly tight confidence interval around it is a pretty robust effect. You've got double the level of risk of having an event in the next five years than somebody without that factor. That, that That's a big deal because... Yeah, we talk about risk. It's not a, it's not an absolute guarantee these things, nor is treating them an absolute yeah. 
you know, validation that you'll be saved. And um, so, if, you know, if I tell you you got, you know, you're, you're risking having a heart attack or a stroke is is twofold what it was than if you didn't have that factor. That's a big deal. And and you talked earlier on about ischemic stroke, and um, and that's that does warrant just a little bit more commentary. The you know the LDL story's always been a little bit more dubious when it comes to stroke. If you look at the cohort studies, LDL doesn't light up. You know, there's been a lot of debate over the years why that's been the case. We know that LDL lowering helps nice. patients, but LDL as a standalone risk factor in in, in, in ischemic stroke is 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 not as strong as as it is for coronary. And so, for LP little a to be a signal there, I think again speaks to this kind of notion of how atherogenic it is. Mm. Yeah, so it's pushing through where LDL hasn't quite lit up itself. Okay. Well, I think that's helpful then. So about 100 to 125, we start thinking of this person as they have the risk-modifying factor. Um, And I just want to quickly detour and ask about the relationship between LP little a and familial hypercholesterolemia. Um, So what is the, you know, the the recommendations that in all those patients they should be tested for LP little a? What's the rationale behind that? What's the link between those two conditions? Well, we know that there's, if you do a Venn diagram of FH patients and high LP little a, the prevalence seems to be greater than just the standard, what we would see in the population of about 20%. So so, so there's something going on there. Um, They're not regulated by the same gene. Yeah. what we also know is that LP little a, by being a good risk enhancer, becomes a good risk enhancer for FH. Mm. Um, I think about in my clinics, I've got a lot of primary prevention FH individuals, you know, people between 20 and 30 years of age. They've been sent to me with a LDL cholesterol that's high. Their Dutch lipid score would suggest that they've, they've probably got a reasonable likelihood that they'll have FH. Some of them have genetic testing, a lot of them don't. Um, but then the question that ultimately I'm faced with and, and the patient's faced with is when do we start treatment? We start treatment early, but what are we aiming for? Mm-hmm. And 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 um, the idea of somebody with FH with a high LP little a, I might be inclined to aim for a lower target than if their LP little a was normal. Okay, so that's a helpful part of it. And had someone uh, had seen something about treatment-resistant FH as being a particularly important s- situation to test LP little a. I wasn't sure whether that. I mean, surely it's not because the LP little a is being counted as part of the LDL. Is that well? It kind of is. That okay. and that's the challenge. Is remember that in the end of the day, L- LDL cholesterol is essentially measuring the cholesterol content of a fraction of plasma, mm. which is essentially kind of that ApoB LDL type. Okay. And and so LDL cholesterol um, can reflect cholesterol that's that's carried on LDL and carried on LP like LP little, little a lipoproteins. And and remembering that the overwhelming majority of people have a really, really low concentration of LP little A. So the vast amount of cholesterol on LDL cholesterol is really on the LDL. But, but, you know, the higher LP little a goes, the more LP little a molecules you have, like proteins you have. Yeah, so then, you know, you, you start to see a differential in what the 
effect on LDL cholesterol lowering might be. So I, I guess you will have some outliers who have these astronomically high LP little a's and it's enough to actually shift the needle on their LDL measurement, I suppose. Yep. Okay, that's really interesting. Well, you know, let's talk about what you can do when you do finally have someone who's got an ele- elevated LP little a and if we'll get to all the new fancy stuff that's mm-hmm. going to come soon. But going back to basics, I mean, is this something that really helps you have that conversation about intensive lifestyle management with, with people and behavioural change? Well, I think it, I think it, and it absolutely does, and it and and it's part of that conversation of intensifying what you're doing. So if if yes, we may intensify statin therapy, but before we get to that, we're we're absolutely going to have a conversation with somebody about um, the modifiability of risk. But it's all based on the cornerstone of lifestyle. So so it starts with diet and exercise. No specific thing that we say for LP little A that. We don't say for, for anything else. else. It just allows for you to have a risk conversation with your patient. And where do you sit on the – this is sort of a more philosophical question, but, you know, you're doing these tests with the intention of behaviour change. So, you know, maybe not with the idea of getting on any other therapy, but really so that the, the patient understands their risk better and maybe more engages better with these um, lifestyle changes that are being recommended. Is yeah, well, I, uh, with the assumption there that – that's what's going to happen, um, yeah, yeah. and and um, we really don't have great clinical trial evidence that actually showing people information does move the dial. We have some, we have some evidence now that's shown us that if you show people their calcium score, they're more likely to to take the therapies that you want them to take, and their risk scores become lower. Um, you know, there's some work going on, and we're doing some of that work, and as are others around the polygenic risk score. Um, space we're using LP little a in one of our studies um, to see if that will be one of the factors that promotes more intensive risk factor lowering kind of um, kind of behavior uh, so you, you these implementation studies are, are kind of underway to, to ask that very question yeah I guess for me the part that I and you can correct me if, this, if I'm wrong here but what would be interesting is to see if I imagine there would be a differential effect based on personality type and that's where a clinician can sort of identify someone who is going to be particularly potentially motivated by this information and the other person who's going to be water off a duck's back, you know, I don't, I'm not really don't care, that's not going to change what I'm doing. Um, so I wonder if there is any work where we integrate maybe behavioural science with with uh, with what we're doing, sort of understanding personality types and how they respond to different information. I mean, I think there's no doubt that we need to play horses for courses in the conversation you have with a patient um, and try and understand what, what the motivation will be and what it won't be. Um, I think the concept of risk is really hard. I think as a clinician, as a researcher, I struggle enough with risk. And then to then go and have that conversation about risk 15, 20 times a day um, with a fairly diverse group of patients in terms of literacy and all sorts of other things um, is, is, is really hard. Um, one of the things we talk about is simply showing people plaque, mm. for example, and, and, and that can be a powerful message for some people where numbers may showing them their own plaque exactly yeah okay yeah yeah so or showing them their risks in some sort of um visual way Mm. uh and um rather than just say well you've got a you've got a four percent risk of having a heart attack in the next five years or ten years or whatever what does that mean to people um so showing them relative to their actual um, 
biological age, um, you know, is 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 potentially something worth looking at, and and you know, and that's been uh, uh, an approach that has been picked up in the UK, for example, um, where that concept of vascular age has been used quite effectively um, as a as a way to try and distill a complex series of pieces of information into a number into into a message mm-hmm. um, but then what do you do with that message and you know we're doing increasing amount of genetic testing and we don't do a genetic test without thinking around counseling yeah right? they think about it so we need to be thinking more and more about if we're going to do all these other tests um, how do we what, catch that information for what's, what's the carry on yeah, yeah what's the carry through yeah okay well let's move into some of the levers that we can pull in the more traditional clinical paradigm so statin therapy as you said bumps up your lp little a a little bit just to pause there do we know why that happens not really okay not really but (laughs) but you know it it doesn't change the view right it's um um my I, i take the same view about that as i do with the very small risk that you have of having diabetes is is well these are high risk people they're going to benefit from a statin and i'll watch that other stuff so so it it, and and i and i warn patients i said you look your 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 lp little a may go up a little bit if if they've come to me with an lp little a and i'll say well you should be treated um from a statin perspective you know if, if if your risk requires that and um and that that, that that might happen. Mm. And it's, I've seen some nice modelling data that shows that it can actually offset, you know, being on a statin can offset a lot of the LP little a associated risk. So that's kind of a nice... Oh, look, I think so. And and, and and keep in mind that when we're talking about an increase in LP little a, we're talking about an average of about 10%. Mm. We're not talking about a twofold increase. Yeah, that's right. So, and, and, you know, we're not talking about the massive increase in atherogenicity that would come along with, with that. We're coming... We're, we're talking about a, a pretty modest increase... Is you know, it possible that's just a measurement-related thing? You have sort of non-functional LP little a molecules circulating around now that would have otherwise been some other well, space. Well, look, it could. Although I think that we've pretty consistently seen it in in cohort studies where we've been able to get serial measures and 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 that that's been done in a standardised way. So I, I think it's real. I think the clinical implications are pretty modest, and I, as you said, I think they're easily offset. Um, by the use of statins in those in those patients, and then you start to think, well, what else do we have today? Right, um, you know, for a long time, the only things we had were niacin or hormone replacement therapy, which both can lower LP little a. Um, in contemporary clinical trials, haven't reduced cardiovascular risk, and 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 they're not particularly effective mm. approaches to lowering LP little a. Yeah, the doses of niacin you need are. Are, are really quite substantial doses and generally make it intolerable to and people. and really really challenges the tolerability and um so so it, it really has begged the question can we have therapies that come along that can lower lp little a that will then also have the potential to lower risk pcsk9 seems like an interesting story um like in the sub sub studies from Fourier and odyssey we seem to see that there's about 30 percent reduction if i'm not mistaken and and as far as i could tell looking through the numbers and obviously it gets a bit complicated the more sub analysis you do but a lot of the benefit seems to be in those with elevated lp little a levels especially if they're already on the lower end of the ldl spectrum at baseline it's been a nice story um and 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 you know it speaks a lot to the concept of validating a result from another study. Uh, so we we saw um, we saw consistently LP little a lowering probably twenty five thirty percent in all the all the studies of PCSK nine inhibitors. Keeping in mind that 
all of those studies of PCSK9 inhibitors were not done exclusively in people with high LP little a's. So, you know, you, if you say, well, the prevalence of high LP little a is 20%, maybe in FH it's a little bit higher. Um, in patients with clinically manifest ASCVD, it's a little bit higher, but it's not 50%. Mm-hmm. So even in the context of those studies, the median LP little a at baseline is still within the normal range. Um, 30% lowering, um, but what we see in both Fourier and Odyssey is that it independently associates with the benefits, and, and that's that's an important observation. Um, one of the challenges with trying to do those types of analyses in a trial where a therapeutic so substantially lowers LDL cholesterol is how do you tease the two apart? And um, but the data is consistent, um, which is encouraging and does give some support to this concept that LP little a lowering will associate with a lowering of risk. The genetics suggest that that's probably the case, but until we actually see it with new therapeutics in clinical trials that specifically do that, we won't know. And 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 one of the challenges is this concept of how much LP little a lowering will be required. So early Mendelian randomization studies suggested that the degree of LP little a lowering to achieve about a 15% reduction in MACE, which is what you kind of see in a lot of LDL lowering outcome trials, was, was huge. In fact, was probably largely prohibitive in terms of even trying to develop these drugs. And you could never achieve those sorts of reductions. Or you would or you would have to be enrolling people with exquisitely high levels that would then be a very small fraction of the population. And so doing the studies would be hard, making the argument that this was a viable therapeutic to put out into clinical development and clinical practice was going to be really hard as well. Um, um but but the, but the tide has kind of shifted a bit. On that, this concept that, well, we know that 30% lowering of LP little a in the PCSK9 inhibitor study seems to work. Um, if we start to think about the relationship between LP little a and risk, particularly in those big cohort studies, and we take out all the young, healthy people and we think, well, we'd, we're not going to treat the primary prevention people to start with. If we start with secondary prevention, then probably the, the interplay of other factors um, becomes important in terms of risk and modifiability, and and so and and that's the bet that has been These made. Companies are taking that's right? the bet that's been made is that we've enrolled patients with lower high LP little A's um, into these studies. Yeah, okay, but higher risk for, due to a confluence of other factors. Yeah, and that, absolutely. That, little, that bit might move the needle there. Okay, well, that segues nicely into the novel treatment. So it looks like, aside from Valaplin, which we'll come to later, the dominant sort of two therapies that are appearing are either small interfering RNAs or antisense oligonucleotides. Um and before we get into sort of the specifics of those, uh, and for people who don't know, those drugs work by inhibiting essentially mRNA in one way or another and preventing the expression of the LP little a gene as, as the LP little a protein eventually or, or particle. Um, but as a broad category, is there any important difference between those two different categories of, of therapy that need to be considered? So antisense oligonucleotide, small interfering RNAs from a clinical point of view? So fundamentally, probably no. I mean, I... 
I kind of look at these things to some degree that they're generations of therapeutics. So we kind of started off with the ASOs. Um, I think we've seen the um, the short or small RNA interfering agents probably be just that little bit more specific with the potential to be a little bit more clean okay. in terms of um, tolerability. Um, I think we're only going to know the answer to that question when we see see the data from really big trials. Um, um, that That's probably been something that's emerged if you look at some other targets that perhaps um, the SIRNAs look a little bit better tolerated than... This is than, borrowing from things like neurology and other places. Yeah, and even, even looking at triglyceride targets like so APOC3, NGPTL3, for example, but... Um, but, but that being said, I, I think that um, they're all really um, attractive RNA-targeted therapies. I think what's been the game changer for a lot of these therapies is has been our ability to selectively target the hepatocyte so we can deliver these therapies exactly where we want them. So you've got targeting particular RNA, but you're doing it in a particular cell. Um, and that means you get the efficacy, and hopefully, minimize you don't, the side effects. You minimize the side effects, and and so this kind of Galnac delivery platform has really been a game changer for so many therapies. We it's important for things like inclycerin. It underscores the importance of um, LP little A. Um, even as you get into gene editing, it's played a role there. Um, although I think that technology's um, advancing at an incredible rate and, 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 and harnessing a whole range of different tools. tools. They've got available. Okay, so well then if we start with the ASOs, which, you know, nominally the older technology as it were, um, uh, Pelicarsin seems to be, is that the main or yeah. only uh, uh, drug available there? And um, we saw it was the LP little a horizon study, I believe, that showed that it reduces LP little a levels by 80% compared to 6% in placebo, which is pretty substantial. And you spoke earlier about needing large changes. I mean, these drugs are doing some significant lowering. Um, there's a whole bunch of different dosing schedules there, which are both weekly and monthly. Looking at the graphs myself, um, I couldn't come... It seems like, you know, the lowest dosing schedule, you know, assuming that that promotes the best adherence would be, you know, so something monthly would be the optimal choice. Is that kind of where people are sitting? What's the feeling about what's going to be the best way to dose these medications? Yeah, I, I, I don't think that there's been a lot of interest in developing... Certainly, a daily, ther- an injectable, um, or even a weekly injectable. So, I, I think it's been how do we, how do we develop therapeutics that can be monthly, quarterly, or even potentially even less frequently. And I guess we'll get to some of that, yeah, um, you know, in a minute. And 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 we pretty consistently saw it was that kind of 80 percent, um, LP little a lowering. Now, now remember. A lot of those studies are relatively short. You've got small groups of highly motivated patients who got into those early studies and they were relatively short in duration. We're going to learn a lot about what real world, and I kind of use air quotes for that, it's still um, a clinical experience trial. looks like in a longer, larger cardiovascular outcome trial when people are having to do this for four or five years. Mm. Um, and... Um, so will it still be in that 75, 80 range? We know that there'll be some study fatigue and some people drop off therapy and whatever. Um, will the LP little a lowering compared to the placebo group be a little bit less than that 
in the end of the day, it, it, it absolutely could be. Possibility, isn't it? And I guess we'll find out. So I think the outcomes trial, LP Little A Horizon outcomes, is due in 2025. And um, they're looking, just for the information, they're looking at people with LP, uh, LP Little A's above 170. So that seemed to be the cutoff there and a history of ASCVD. It is, um, it's interesting, I think, you know, if we compare another injectable therapy, semaglutide, with, with this, one can imagine that adherence rates would potentially be better there because a lot of people are seeing the immediate benefits or, you know, weight loss associated with that drug whereas this, I guess, is you have to be more conceptual or abstract about the benefit, and I wonder how that's going to play in with people's willingness or their adherence uh, to the medication. Well, I think certainly in the first generation of, of clinical trials of LP little a therapies, we have been able to enrol people who are known to have high LP little a, and, and the LP little a community um, knows a lot about LP little a. They know that there's a massive unmet need, um, a lot of them will tell you about their family histories um, and they're desperate they're for motivated. therapies and they're pretty motivated to be in trials. And um, they even accept the fact that they've got a 50% chance they won't get the drug, but that's how you get the drug to the clinic. And, and, and so, so so that's a good thing. Um, what we did was when we designed Horizon is we've actually embedded two analyses. So, you know, we've got... We're going to look at the effect of pelicarsin in the overall cohort compared to placebo, but then we're also going to look in those patients with a slightly higher LP little a. Okay. Right, and, and, and so that's been given enough statistical power in the study design just to give us a little bit of insurance to try and understand this concept of how high you have to of be. effect. Yes, yeah. right, okay. And then side effects wise, at least from those early studies, it kind of looks pretty mild, really. I mean, yeah. Mild, just flu-like reactions. I, you know, I say, I say to patients and a lot of, with a lot of these therapeutics, you know, if you give... If you give a therapy to enough people, they get side effects and the common <laughs> things occur commonly. So yeah. nasopharyngitis and a bit of diarrhoea is not uncommon. But uh, uh, look, you, there's an injection site reaction. Um, we've seen that in a num- with a number of therapeutics. Um, they're pretty mild. Um, they resolve pretty quickly. Um, so a little bit of redness, maybe a little bit of pain. Um, but patients in general seem to tolerate that pretty well. I've got to say, between inclisiran and these drugs, uh, PCSK9 inhibitors in general, I guess, I've been surprised at how minimal the side effects seem to be. It's quite a clean profile for these drugs. Oh, look, I think so. I mean, they, you, you, you hear anecdotes, you you know, and, and if you have enough patients in a lipid clinic, you see enough intolerance, and people will be tolerant just about anything. So, um, but uh, but yeah, I think that I think that they have been they've been extraordinarily well tolerated by patients, and they produce pretty robust effects on their lipid profiles and you know one would hope that that would prove to be the case for an LP little a lowering agent as well and just going back to pelicarsin it, it lowers ldl as well if i'm not mistaken is that right yeah is it significant enough that we can swap out some of our other ldl lowering therapies no, I, no I don't okay. i don't think so <laughs> All right no uh, there's no um unifying injection yet not, not, <laughs> not today that, I, I think that's uh, that's a generation to come okay so moving on to si rnas and i think there's actually a couple of competitors in this space but it seems like all passaran is the is the dominant player is that a fair assessment sln 360 being the other ones yeah so i, I think both of these agents have have looked pretty good um all passaran um, so, so we, we see more than 90% lowering of LP little a. Um, we see agents that can be administered far less frequently. So now we're talking quarterly, six monthly. 
Um, we've seen long-term extension. Um, the, the the Olpasserin program shows us that if you if you measure LP little a twelve months after the last injection, you've still got about forty percent lowering of LP little a. That's interesting. And um, this sort of effect wasn't seen with the uh, ASOs, as far as we're aware, or we don't have that long term. It won't be as robust as as well. So so I think you know that that that's that's pretty good. The, these agents do appear again very well tolerated. Uh, we see um, you know a, a small rate of mild injection site reactions. Um, uh, Opacerin is currently in a in an outcome trial ocean uh, that is um, that is being recruited at the moment, and um, and the SLN program um, again, all of these are going to have to move forward into a large CVOT. So um, um, we kind of wait to see kind of what will happen there. Is there any a priori reason to think that Olpasran, say for example, would have different results to SLN? No, I don't think so. I don't think there's anything particularly unique. I think I think that's going to be the challenge in this program. In these programs, is to understand: do you get more of an effect for more lowering, or is there a sweet spot? That's clearly important. But um, then you're going to get into how much they lowered risk, what the ease of use is, how tolerated they are, what cost is, and cost is outside. Cost is going to be the. I think the, the the big issue in the end of the day, but uh, no, I think that I, I would um, I would expect um, SLN to um, to to look pretty comparable. I think the challenge for starting an outcome trial of an LP little a injectable moving forward is going to be, as you said, um, Horizon will report out in twenty twenty five, and if that works then you're going to have an agent that's going to be approved in a clinic um, in a number of countries um, pretty soon after that. And then, then you're going to start to run into the challenges of trying to recruit patients where there's a standard of care. Already a treatment available. Already available. Now, that may be a different issue when we get into the orals um, that we're going to talk about in a minute, presumably. But uh, um, the um, yeah, so I, I think we've it's got an this... an problem. We've got, we've got this window... And and so the the longer you leave it, then you then need to start thinking about well, how what's the point of distinction of my trial, and why can I still make the argument to an ethics committee, um, and a clinician and a patient to deny therapy to somebody that you should go into my trial because that's actually remains an unmet need and un, a question that we haven't got the answer to, um, but we saw that with statins, um, and 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 so I think there's plenty of scope and and you've already mentioned there are other clinical scenarios where we're not necessarily either enrolling those patients at all, or we have an opportunity to do trials in those cohorts exclusively and I think that's again work that will s- still be to come mm. okay yeah it's really interesting and and so has a clinical outcomes trial started with SLN or are they no okay no. all right gotta get moving soon <laughs> so that brings us to move Laplin, which is you know something obviously that you're very closely associated with so my understanding this is an oral LP little a lowering therapy and it basically breaks that bond between the APOA um, portion of the molecular particle and the ApoB is is that a correct, you know, estimation of how the the drug works? So before I get to mevolapine, don't remember, don't forget, there's another injectable which is lipodiserin. 
So lipoglycerin is a, is another um, siRNA where we see ninety five percent plus lowering of LP little a, and again with the potential for even less frequent administration. So again, you, you're 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 building a whole kind of um, fleet of agents. Um, Nuvolaplins are a really interesting concept because as attractive as developing a small molecule to target LP little a, it has really been a vexing challenge for medicinal chemists for a long time. And, and when you speak to people in that field, um, it's not been for the want of trying. Uh, and, you know, one of the things they talk about is that, you know, the crystallography and the, um, the structure uh, has just presented a range of different challenges. And so um, so we weren't sure if we were going to get an oral inhibitor. And um, what we see with muvalaplin is actually a really kind of interesting concept, which is it's, it's really about trying to inhibit that production of an LP little a um, you know, lipoprotein in the first place, and it's 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 actually as simple as blocking ApoA uh, binding to essentially ApoB. Yeah, yeah, just getting <laughs> um, in between them. And we 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 know how that process occurs. Um, we know that it's a two stage process. There's a there's a non covalent uh, process, and then there's a really strong covalent bond, and we can get in and we can target. Uh, um, specific um, domains uh, are, you know on on ApoA that that really prevent that bond from happening and 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 you know and we see that evidence we see essentially free ApoA um, which which hasn't been bound and 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 oh, so do you measure that in the patient's blood you can actually well well that the current and this is again one of the challenges with the current assays of LP little a is that we think that they are measuring both ApoA bound to ApoB, which is LP little a, um, what is a tiny, tiny fraction of ApoA um, and muvalaplin associated LP little a. And, and so when we get into the context of looking at the effects of muvalaplin on LP little a levels, and we've seen what we've seen, the reduction in functional LP little a may actually be greater. So there may be an underestimate um, of the, in the degree of LP little a lowering using a conventional assay. And, and so that's that's something that's being explored. We, we're we pretty certain, um, but but again, I think there's ongoing work to really look at, and I think some of the oxidised phospholipid work will, will really help in that space. Um, we're pretty certain that, that muvalaplin bound ApoA and that free ApoA is not functional. Okay, so not right. atherogenic. So not, not atherogenic. And, and, um, but again, um, that, that's, that, you know, we've got to dot some I's and cross some T's to, to, to work through that. Well, yeah, that does answer kind of the next question I had, which was I think you saw about a 60% reduction in that very early stage study. But, yeah, so perhaps that explains that it could still be as effective as those other drugs. Look, it's a phase one study. It's a small number of people. Um, and we're seeing 
60-65% lyring. So um, a little bit less, it's less than the injectables, but but again, um, to some degree, you may be prepared to accept that for the convenience, um, of, for the convenience of having an oral tablet and there are people who don't want to take an injectable. Um, we don't know how much LP little a lyring um, is actually required. We don't know if there's a sweet spot. We're only going to find that out by doing big outcome trials. Um, and, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility that if the lowering with muvalaplin is actually a little bit more and you get into an outcome trial where people of, of Pelicarsen, where it's a little bit less, um, they might potentially be in the same ballpark. Well, good. They, they, they might be. But again, there's there's a lot of ifs in that in that statement and most of them may never come true. To throw more ifs into the carousel, I mean, again, it was a small trial, but there seem to be slightly maybe more side effects. Is that a fair statement? Or do they have to over-report them in those sorts of studies? I mean, we saw headaches, diarrhea, vomiting. Yeah, I, look, I, I think what we, we saw what we would expect for a phase one study. I, I, I think we, we need to see bigger numbers. Um, there's a phase two trial um, that's ongoing at the moment. Hopefully we'll see that, that reported in the next 12 months or so. And um, I think that will give us a little bit more clarity about the tolerability, you you want to you you want to give new agents to more people, and particularly more people who you think are going to be the target group. So you know these are going to be higher risk people on other therapies and things like that. That's going to be a different group than than what we saw in in, in the phase one yeah. study with mufilaplin. Okay, cool. Um, well, I had two things that I want to finish up with. One is, you know, we saw, and you mentioned earlier, that sort of um, spectre of diabetes associated with statin use. And if I'm not mistaken, really low LP little a levels are potentially associated with diabetes. Is that a risk that we should be concerned about? Is it real? Is it? Well, it, um, the observations are consistent, um, and it's been and it's been embedded into the outcome trials to okay, look at. So and and I, and I think it's the same. To be honest, I, I really do think it's the same kind of principle that we apply when we think about statins and diabetes, which is there may be a bit of signal, but but it's a manageable. It's a manageable risk. Um, the therapies that we're using are actually about lowering risk in these people. Um, and, and, you know, this concept that we're going to render these people diabetic doesn't suddenly mean they're all going to have HbA1Cs of eleven percent. You it's know, a it's small bump. In. It's small bump. It's it's manageable. We have much better therapies for treating diabetes today. Um, so I, I would like to think that um, that's something that we talk to our patients about. Um, informed consent's really important. Shared decision making's really important. Um, but I but I think that we can manage manage those risks. It comes out there, or at least the signals that are coming out now don't seem significant enough to, to impair our use of these. And the last one is, I mean, we have this marker that's largely genetically determined, seems to stay the same over most of your life. Is there a gene editing therapy on the horizon? It seems like a perfect target for something like that. It would seem that way. It would seem that way. The answer is yes. I think yep. there's a lot of interest in this space. So, uh, gene editing is incredible. I mean, if we'd sat here and done this podcast seven years ago and thought that we were actually going to be on the on the edge of using gene editing for treating common lipid risk factors, uh, we could have sat here for the next twenty minutes and laughed. <laughs> um, but you have you have multiple therapy uh, therapeutic um, 
strategies targeting PCSK9, NGPTL3, LP little a, um, this concept of a one and done mm. therapeutic. LP little a would be a really attractive concept for that, this idea that everybody should have their LP little a measured once. You've got a sky high LP little a, you've got a family history of heart disease, it's not great. Come in and have a. It's got the head off the snake. There. Come on, have a therapy, and 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 that's it. Is 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 pretty impressive. So there's a lot of water to go under the bridge, uh, in terms of gene editing. We have the good fortune to be um, participating in some gene editing studies here at the Victorian Heart Hospital. Um, that's something that I, um, I'm really excited for our patients. That that's that's an opportunity and. Um, um, We'll see how it pans out in all of those different settings. Well, Steve, thanks so much for your time and for the insight. It's been great. Is there any final comments you want to give about LP Little A? Um, watch this space and, and, and please measure it. Please work with your patients. Um, the only way we can tackle LP Little A is cardiovascular risk factor if we measure it. And we need to really work with the payers, whether it's governments, insurance companies, whatever, to make the value proposition that we should be measuring it more and more in our patients today. There'll be a big payoff in the future and thanks for having me. A lovely message to finish on. Thanks.